masculine initiation occurred in all of human history for you know a million and a half two years we were tribal the men the the adults the hunters the warriors took the boys and put them in situations where they taught them skill sets and taught them basically how to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable most men do not have that nowadays we're missing that Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello and welcome, fellow human. It's good to be podcasting again today after a hiatus of about a month, I guess. I've been getting some really nice emails and Facebook messages and things like that from listeners, so thank you so much. Thank you, as always, to everyone who's left a review on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes recently. Those mean a lot to me. They make make a big difference to me and my motivation to keep this going. So yes, as always, please, if you have 30 free seconds, which I imagine you do, please leave a rating and review of Humans Love on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. They, they really help the show and they provide me with the incentive I need to keep going. I have a really good one today and I feel like I say that every week slash every podcast, but I'm really excited to share this one with you today. My guest is Dr. Robert Glover, who you'll remember from, I believe, episode 18. He's another repeat guest, but he is a Very impressive human being, a very interesting guy. He's the author of the self-help slash men's development classic, absolute classic, called No More Mr. Nice Guy. And he has a new book out called Dating Essentials for Men. It is, surprise, surprise, a guide to dating for men, guide how men can have better relationships with women, how guys can, you know, everything from meeting and, and seducing women all the way up to having a relationship with a woman and eventually marriage. But it's not like a pickup guide, uh, as we'll get into in this interview. He's not to be confused with the skeezy pickup artist community. He's a man of great integrity, great wisdom. And I was excited to have this opportunity to talk to him again. You know, this is one of the really cool things about having a podcast like this, having a platform like this, is I get to pick the brain of some of my favorite authors and thinkers on a regular basis. So life is good. Before we get into the interview, which I think you'll really enjoy, we cover a lot of ground with dating for men and relationships and men's development in 2019 and Me Too and I mean all kinds of things. We really go deep in this one. Before we get into that, yeah, I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's been patient with me, everyone who has stuck around while I've tried to figure out better formatting options and better scheduling options. I have a bunch of great episodes in the can already that I'm excited to share over the next couple months. So be sure to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Many good things are in the works. Without any further ado, I present to you the author of Dating Essentials for Men, Dr. Robert Glover. The main reason I wanted to talk to you today, uh, and thanks again for making time for me again, it's great to to connect with you, is I wanted to kind of pick up where we left off. So the last time we spoke, we spoke about uh, nice guy syndrome and your, your first book, probably what you're best known for, No More Mr. Nice Guy. And uh, you recently released Dating Essentials for Men, yeah. which I'm excited to talk to you about and dig into a little bit. So first off, just to kind of you know, set the, the tone for the interview and to give people some context, uh, who is this new book for? Uh, other than like just men, like who, who are you really <laughs> trying to reach with this, with this book? Uh, and how is this different from No More Mr. Nice Guy? Okay, good questions. The first one's relatively obvious. Kind of, kind of when when I, I sent the book to my agent, um, he said, "Well, I think we need a little sexier title." Um, I go, "Yeah, I guess." But this is what I've been calling it for a long time. It's Seneca self-explanatory. It's it's teaching men how to date. So the target is men, of course. Um, and in my experience, when 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 I started teaching men to date, which for me was one time in my life, almost kind of an oxymoron of me as a dating coach, because I, I was a terrible dater in high school and college. Um, I had been married to two women for a total of 25 years. And then I became single in my late 40s and realized, you know, 
I, if I wasn't going to repeat the same thing that I did in my first two marriages, there's reasons why I wasn't still married to those women. And I didn't want to go just go do that all over again. So uh, I realized I had to learn how to date. Mainly, I had, I had to learn how to become a better picker and a better ender. Um, I, 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 and, and to be a good picker, you have to be a good dater. You have to, you have to have some skill sets to actually get out there and have choices. And so I, I realized I needed to work on that and I needed to work on being a good ender because I, I now, I now come to say that being a good ender can cover a multitude of sins when it comes to being a bad picker. Um, and, and dating, if you think about it really is about a series of making, uh, it's a series of bad choices. You go out with this woman and realize, nah, I don't want to keep seeing her. And so you go out with another one, eh, she's okay, but no. So you make a lot of choices that turn out not to be the right choice in terms of seeing somebody long-term. And so being a good ender lets you make a lot of wrong choices, which is, that's what dating is about. You, you knew, it's a numbers game. You actually need to connect with a lot of people to do it very successfully. And I didn't have those skill sets to date, uh, to connect with a lot of people. Uh, I mean, I didn't know how to approach a woman. I didn't know when or how to ask for a phone number. I didn't know how to tell if she was in a relationship. So um, what happened is, is that like when I became single for a while, I, I didn't even want to talk to women. I, I'd done so much heavy lifting in my marriages. It's like, yeah, I, I don't even want to talk to them. So um, I, I took a break for several months. And then um, actually it was on my book tour for No More Mr. Nice Guy that you know, I met a woman, talked to her while I was in a bar on the road, and then talked to another and talked to another and, you know, different towns and started realizing, okay, this isn't so bad. I can talk to these women. And, and, uh, and while I kind of started opening up and experimenting, you know, I tried online dating and did that some on and off. My clients started giving me books about that time. I think the game had come out and David D'Angelo had his double year dating material. So people were giving me stuff to read and watch. And, um, and I, I just went out and tried stuff. I just practiced, just took, read an idea and all right, I'll, I'll go out and try that. And I'll just, and, and just over time, um, just by being learning to be a social animal, learning to be bold, learning to be assertive. Um, I developed skills that, you know, I started getting a lot of dates and started having a lot of sex. And my clients started saying, teach us, tell us what you're doing. So that's where dating essentials began. And it began like with a, a weekend workshop with some of my clients. And then it turned into a, a four on week, four, four week online classes that I taught for about 10 years. And then I pulled it all together in, into the book for dating essentials. Now, in terms of how it's different from No More Mr. Nice Guy, I don't know that it's inherently different other than when I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy, I was married and had never really been single in my adult life. I married my first wife two days after I graduated from college. Um, and I met my second wife while I was still married to my first wife. So there was like, overlap there. You can read between the lines about that. Um, and so I, I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy while I was married. Now, to me, kind of the irony of it, if, if you go on Amazon and look under dating books, um, No More Mr. Nice Guy is typically in the top five of dating books, which that's always kind of blown me away a little bit because I knew nothing about dating when I wrote it. I saw it more as, a, as kind of a relationship book. Um, but my, 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 training and background is in relationships. My doctorate's in marriage and family therapy. So I've been working with people around relationships, especially with men around relationships for about 20 plus years. So dating essentials for men in a lot of ways is, is kind of the continuation of no more Mr. Nice Guy. It's learning how to be assertive. It's learning how to make your needs a priority. It's learning how to be bold. It's learning how to be honest and authentic. Um, but with in a specific skill category, i.e., you know, how do single men relate to women and how to do that effectively. And I often call dating essentials for men the unpickup guide to dating success. I'm not a big fan of pickup. Um, I'm not even a big fan of just like cold approach. Um, I, I think there's much more effective ways to date and have dating success than to go to a bar, see the hottest woman and try to figure out how to get her attention. Um, even the pros have to really, really work at doing that. And for a guy that's never dated well in his life, that's just a recipe for crashing and burning and giving up and not trying anything. 
So Dating Essentials for Men, like No More Mr. Nice Guy, teaches you how to be authentic. And I think that's the core underlying piece of both of them. This might not be an easy question to answer. I have, well, I have several questions that come up as, as you're speaking, but what does being authentic mean to you? What do you mean when you, when you say that? Oh, that's an easy question to answer, Ashley. <laughs> Tee them up for me, man. Um, <laughs> being authentic, you know, is simply being yourself. And as odd as that may sound, but, and, and that's a really core theme in, in both the Dating Essentials for Men book and the Positive Emotional Tension book that I'm writing right now, is a core piece is be yourself. That is what makes you authentically attractive. And I'll say more about Can that. Can I pause but, you right yeah. there, Dr. Cover, no. if you don't mind? Because, and this is why I'm asking the question, because this advice, I think a lot of people take this advice, just be yourself in a lot of different ways. And a lot of guys say, well, that's what my mom told me yeah. <laughs> when I was 14. It really hasn't served me well. And I know you're probably coming from a slightly different place. So I, I guess I asked the question because just be yourself, be authentic, hasn't served a lot of guys very well. Maybe something closer to being your best self. Well, let, so let me, let me run with this. Um, sure. Here, and here's what, what guys tell me is, you know, yeah, my mother told me, just be yourself. But here's what I tell guys. I go, well, if I'm just being myself should work, how come I never get laid? How come women never talk to me? And I don't say just be yourself. But being yourself is the foundation where you start. You got to develop skill sets as well. It's like saying to, you know, if somebody says, well, I want to be a professional athlete. Well, just be yourself. Well, be yourself, but you got to work on some skill sets as well to be a professional athlete. To be good at anything, you have to work at the skill sets. So it's not just be yourself, but it begins with being yourself. Um, and, but here's what guys tell me. And, and I know where you're coming from because I hear this all the time. Well, being myself, you know, is so great. How come women don't talk to me? How, how come I don't get laid? And what I tell guys is the truth is, number one, you've probably never let women see yourself, see your best self. You've probably never let you see yourself. And here's what I mean. Let's start with, with the guy seeing himself. And that may sound kind of odd. But if you think about it, most of us grow up in systems that teach us, don't be yourself. We go to school, and school is all about teaching little kids, don't be you. <laughs> be, be this to fit into a system that, that we you know, have, have determined is what will give you success and make you happy. Um, religion doesn't teach people, in general, most religions don't teach people, just be yourself. They teach, oh, no, there's parts of you that are bad, that are sinful, that are evil. You've got to get rid of those things about you. Most families do not teach their kids, be yourself. They teach, no, stop doing that. They teach little boys, don't touch your penis in public. Don't burp, don't fart. You know, don't, don't point at people and comment that they're ugly. You know, don't be yourself. So every system we grow up in says, don't be yourself, be this other thing. And for men, culturally, nowadays, we have no system of, I'll just call it initiation, and I talk a lot about this, um, that we have no initiation system that men used to have. Used to be when boys hit adolescence, there were initiations of how to go be a successful adult. That doesn't happen anymore. So all little boys get basically is, you know, don't be this, don't be this, don't be this. As, as one guy told me after reading my book a few years ago, he said, you know, by the time I graduated from college, I didn't know how to be me. I didn't know how to be successful. All I knew was what not to be, right? Don't be this, don't be this, don't be this. So most men have never been themselves. So I'm a big believer that, that we need initiation to teach men how to be their best selves. Um, I was watching a, a video just the other day with um, uh, Jordan Peterson, and he was talking, um, I can't, oh, what's the interviewer's name that he's done a bunch of podcasts with? Uh, they're talking about incels. Um, Joe Rogan? Yeah, with Joe Rogan. And uh, I, I, I'd heard a lot about you know these interviews, but I hadn't seen one until just the other day. And they're talking about incels and, and, you know, and, the, and the issue of, of forced monogamy or imposed monogamy. And, and, you know, and, and Jordan Peterson was trying to explain the point he had tried to make that got skewed in the New York Times. And Joe Rogan has said, but these guys, you know, aren't getting laid. And he said, don't they, don't they need to grow up? Don't they need, you know, 
something. And I'm thinking, yeah, they need initiation because they, they've never learned how to be them and develop a skill set that, that will make them successful in the world and with women. So, so many men I work with nowadays, I, I call it, they, they hang out in the nursery. They, they seek, you know, the validation of safe women. Uh, they end up in the friend zone. They, you know, may play a lot of video games, surf the internet, watch a lot of TV. They're on YouTube. They're Facebook. They're, you know, smoking dope. They're drinking. They're jerking off to porn and not doing a goddamn thing that actually challenges them to be not only their authentic self, but their best self. So number one, I don't think most men have ever been their, their true selves. Number two, when they get around women, they, if there was any sense of them there, it disappears. They start thinking, how do I impress her? How do I say the right thing? How do I get her to like me? How do I avoid rocking the boat? How do I not make a mistake? How do I not fuck up? How do I? And so they're filled with anxiety. They're avoidant. They're, uh, they're passively pleasing, and then they go, and, and the women don't like me. Well, women aren't attracted to that. And so a core thing I teach men in being authentic, for example, I teach them two things that sound really simple, but I think they're really important dating skills. Uh, one is blurting, and the other is acting on impulse. Now, well, wait a minute, what's that about? Okay, well, guys will tell me, well, I'm not funny, or I'm not interesting, or I can't say clever things. And I've found with most men, unless they're just severely autistic, most men actually have pretty good senses of humor and, and, and can see parody and irony and, and even sarcasm. Well, a lot of men are sarcastic. But when they're talking to a woman, they'll have a thought in their head and they like repress it. Oh, I can't say that. That, that might be offensive to her. She, she might react. She might throw a drink in my face. So they hold back. They don't, they don't think, they don't say the stuff that just comes up in their head. And then they go, well, I'm not funny or I'm not interesting. I go, well, yeah, you're right. When you're repressing every impulse, every thought, every, every, you know, ironic thing in your head, trying to play it safe and get approval, you're not going to be particularly interesting. And the other is, is the acting on impulse. You know, I, I teach guys something I call the three T's touch, tease, and tell. Not to turn that into a technique of, okay, touch a woman this many times, tease her this many times, tell her to do something this many times, is to remind them, don't hold back. So many guys might have an impulse like to touch a woman, but they don't because, oh no, I'll end up, uh, you know, hashtag me too, you know, uh, casually tail. Or, you know, to tease a woman, oh no, I might say something that she'll take wrong or, or to tell her what to do. I don't want to be the controlling bad man, you know. And so they do nothing. Okay. That's not being themselves. So I have found, and I say this in No More Mr. Nice Guy, it's our rough edges that make us attractive to people. It's our humanity. It's our imperfections. You know, it's, 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 it's it, it being able to accept all of these things about ourselves and kind of put them out into the world that makes us interesting. Now, is everybody going to like us? No. Is everybody going to be attracted to us? No. Is everybody going to want to spend time to us? No. But I guarantee that if you don't show your rough edges, if you're just this Teflon man trying to do everything right, never risking, never being bold, never asserting yourself, nobody's going to be interested. So that's my answer to guys that say, well, you know, I'm trying to be my best self, but that, that doesn't get me laid. Eh, you're right. Being that kind of pseudo self will not get you laid. Even if you learn a bunch of tricks, you, you know, you might occasionally get a woman with low self-esteem that's had enough to drink that you'll get laid. But, you know, the tricks don't work either. That's still not being yourself. That's tremendous and a very thoughtful answer. And I'm glad I asked the question because I think that really, yeah, that gets exactly the point that I'm, that I was curious about. I was going to save this question for later, but you mentioned, and I was curious if you'd followed um, the sort of phenomenon around him at all. Uh, and and I personally, just watching this over the past few years, far more interesting than the man himself, I find sort of the reactions he, he produces in people, men and women alike, and just mm -hmm. the, the culture and the media and the legions of young men flocking to him. Um, I, I find that all very interesting. And I was curious, you know, ask, to ask you in particular, you know, the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, this sort of iconic men's development book. Do, do you think things are getting, and this is kind of a general question, but do you think things are getting better for men? Like, are you more optimistic about the future of men 
uh, today than you were, you know, over a decade ago when you wrote the book? Like, what are your thoughts on that? And, you know, the whole Jordan Peterson thing. And, and I mean, do you see any, any reasons for optimism in the era of, you know, Me Too and, and all the rest that's going on? Like, how, how do you sort of feel about things going forward for men? I, I actually am amazingly optimistic. Uh, it's kind of my nature anyway, but you know, I've gone through phases of being pessimistic. I grew up during the radical feminism of the 60s and 70s. And you know, kind of the hashtag Me Too movement today is kind of a you know, rehash, revisiting of, of that. But I don't think even today, you know, men, men kind of whine and complain about you know, all the feminist stuff. And I, it was a lot noisier, it seemed to me anyway, when I was an adolescent and young adult. You know, I thought all women hated men, you know, you know, the slogans, every man's a rapist, you know, an, an erection's a sign of aggression. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Uh, Gloria Steinem, who said that, later married a very wealthy man. But, you know, all, all these things, you know, they, 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 got, they got, you know, ingrained into my nervous system. Um, and so that, it actually took me a long time to get over a, a lot of that, that women thought think sex is bad and they think men who want to have sex is bad. Um, what I later came to realize is most of the angriest voices of radical feminism were a bunch of pissed off lesbians. I'm thinking, well, that's not even my target audience. That's not who I want to get with anyway. Um, and, but I, I generalize that to all women. And I see guys do that a lot now. I got an email. Uh, it's either, no, it was, a, it was a question in my um, in an online class I teach on positive emotional tension just yesterday. And the guy says, I'm like, well, you know, well, uh, half the women out there that think they're equal or better than men and, you know, they're liberated and they're this and the hashtag me too. And they don't want a man to lead them. And they don't want, how do you, how do you address that? I thought, well, number one, I, I answered it. Number one, what, what story are you making up about women? How do you know half of the women in the world are a certain Right? That's a story. Now, it's one thing I see in the manosphere where men get together and hash out all the evil uh, hypergamous women and all that is they create a lot of fucking stories based on very limited experience. And, and, and you know, they'll build on each other's stories. Now, that isn't moving men forward, but it is where a lot of, the, of men go. Uh, young and old, and, and I even asked. And don't you that. find the the victim mentality of a lot of these guys, and yeah. just the constant whining, and, and I mean, it, to my mind, it's the opposite of masculinity. It's like the most sort of just. I mean, it, it makes me crazy reading so much of that stuff. I just want to shake right. these guys and be like, your lives are not going to improve by you know writing these ridiculous blog posts and generalizing, as you say, about women on the internet, like. Take some fucking ownership for your situation, boys. You know, it, oh, some some of that stuff just makes my head explode. Well, that's why I don't read it. <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't read blogs on the manosphere. People said, "Blah, have you read blah blah blah?" And I go, "No." Like I said, I just watched my first Jordan Peterson uh, interview just a week ago. Now I've read his book. I mean, yeah, that, that took a few weeks. I, that that fucker's big, um, and I liked it. Um, Probably not for all the reason that, you know, all the guys wearing lobster t-shirts like it, but I just thought, you know, I got, the guy's brilliant. Um, but yes, I agree with you. And that's why I don't go in the manosphere. And I tell men, get out of the manosphere. It's not serving you. The women aren't in the manosphere, right? You're not going to meet any women holding up online, you know, postulating about hypergamy with other men. It ain't going to happen. You're not going to meet any women. <laughs> Hard to meet chicks there. <laughs> They're just not hanging out there going, yeah, maybe I'll meet a great guy here. Um, <laughs> so like I told this guy in this post in my class, I said, number one, what story are you running? And then he replied later and said, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time. He's, he was a guy in his 50s, I think. I spend a lot of time in the manosphere. I said, well, is it serving you? Does it, does it make your life better? Does, is it helping you get laid? Um, you know, okay, I know about spinning plates and I know about this, but is it getting you laid? Is it getting you love? Um, no, probably not. So with this guy, when he said, well, you know, women are this way and women are this way, I go, number one, how do you know? What is your story? And I said, and number two, it doesn't matter what women say. In my experience, they'll say one thing and do a completely different thing. You know, I, I can't tell you how many women that, you know, I was dating would say to me, for example, um, oh, and by the way, I, I won't sleep with you if we're not in a committed relationship. Now, most guys go, oh, no, she's not going to sleep with me unless I commit. All right, number one, a woman doesn't say that unless she wants to sleep with you. 
You know, she, 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 she's not saying that to make a bunch of rules. She's saying that to let you know she's ready to sleep with you. You know, we, we, we got to understand how women communicate. And, and so what I would tell women, I go, well, I actually don't commit to a woman until I've slept with her. I go, why would I do that? Why would I make a, 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 say I'm going to be exclusively sexual with one woman who I've never even slept with? That doesn't make any kind of logical sense whatsoever. At least to a male brain, it doesn't. Um, and so what I would tell women when they would tell me that, well, uh, you know, I, I don't sleep with a guy unless I'm in a committed relationship. I go, okay, that's cool. I go, I, I, I don't make committed commitments to women unless I've slept with them. And I go, but I tell you what, when you do sleep with me, don't assume I changed my mind. I'm going to assume you changed your mind. And every single woman that, that said that, and I responded with that, slept with me within 24 hours because they're saying one thing, but they're doing another thing, right? And so I tell guys, don't listen to the rhetoric. Don't listen to the words that come out of their mouth. You show up, set the tone, you lead, you live life on your terms, you invite them to come be with you or not. And, the, and, then, and then the other point I make to guys is that lets you get to rejection quickly. You find out quickly, is this a woman you want to hang out with? Why do you, okay, if you think 50% of all women are, you know, ball busting, controlling, dominant, you know, whatever you want to call them, do you want to be with those women? Well, I don't. So I, I tell you what, I'm going to find out quickly which women fit into that category. It doesn't matter to me if it's half of them, 10% of them, 90%. I just know I'm not going to spend much time with women in that category. Well, I got to find out quickly, which is which. So I got to set the tone. I've got to lead. I've got to invite them into my great life. I've got to be me. They've got to like me as I am. I'm not going to try to impress them. I'm not going to try to buy their love. You know, they, they either like the direction my train is going and they, they want to ride that train or they don't. Right? I'm going to find out quickly, which it is. So I'm going to choose a woman who chooses me. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to get all those women in that other category who might not like the direction my life is going and how I live it. I'm not going to try to get them to choose me. So, again, it's this rhetoric that we build up in our minds. So to get back to the question you asked me is, am I, am I optimistic? Um, if I just listen to men whine, no, that doesn't make me optimistic. But here's my thought about feminism of the 60s and 70s and the revisit with the, the hashtag me too. We men, okay, two points here. One is I've already said, we lack initiation. Masculine initiation occurred in tr all of human history. For you know, a million and a half, two years, we were tribal. The men, the, the adults, the hunters, the warriors took the boys and put them in situations where they taught them skill sets and taught them basically how to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable how to face fears, how to do things that scare you, and how to do it as a man with other men with skill sets that increase the likelihood of succeeding. That's initiation. Most men do not have that nowadays. We're missing that. That's why the boys go hang out in the nursery. You know, we've been raised by women through our mothers, preschool, elementary school, you know, listening to what women say they want in a man, and we've never been initiated in, in, into the, the scary world of the masculine. So, that's a need men have. And I see that as a growing dynamic in this world. So the same, the same internet that brings us the manosphere where men sit around and whine also brings us men doing podcasts and writing books and coaching and leading men's programs that are initiating men into this scary world. Now, the other piece of this is that men need tribe. Again, we, men have existed, humans have existed in tribes for the majority of human existence. Kind of the, 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 the ownership, more one-on-one -on -one economic model of relationship has existed in human history for less than 10,000 years compared to like a million and a half, two million years of human existence in tribes. So we need tribe. And when I went on my book tour back in 2003 for No More Mr. Nice Guy, um, a lot of the journalists I did interviews with said, well, do you see a worldwide men's movement coming, kind of like feminism? And I said, no, not really. I don't think there's one unifying factor for men. Maybe it'd be, you know, uh, father's rights and custody battles. That might be the most kind of hot topic for men. But I've, I've changed my mind. Well, I still don't think there's one unifying factor. Well, I think there is actually, but men just don't know it. And it's called tribe. 
What I'm seeing is that worldwide, and the, the internet's helped us tremendously, is men are seeking other men to connect with. They just don't know that they're seeking tribe. And even though I'm not a big fan of pickup, it's one way men go seek tribe. They, they go connect with, they go to a book camp. They go connect with other men to go learn how to meet women. Okay, great. They're with men. Uh, men go to 12-step programs to quit drinking or quit doing drugs or quit looking at porn. And usually the, the bottom line is they connect with men. They find tribe in a 12-step program. Men might go to a, a, a divorce group for men going you know, through separation or divorce, and they think they're going to deal with the loss of divorce. Guess what they end up with? A tribe of men. Um, this happens in so many different ways, all the way from Mankind Project to, like I said, 12 Steps to men just go seeking men's programs. And I, I actually think there is a worldwide movement for men where men with, without knowing it, um, you know, even, even if they're just going, you know, to, to find a Bible study or a poker group or they're looking, they're seeking out men to have as companion and to have as, as for friendship and resource and accountability. Uh, I'm in a men's program. I have several accountability groups that I've created from the men's program that I'm in. I have an exercise accountability group. We, we, we get on what's, uh, WhatsApp every day and, and check in with how we did, if we didn't do it. Uh, I have a writer's accountability group every morning at 9 a.m., Monday through Friday. I'm on Zoom with, with from one to three other guys. We don't even talk to each other. We're just all on Zoom together writing. Um, I have another accountability group just for some of the, the bigger pieces in my life that I, that I want to, to keep track of. We, we talk to each other regularly and twice a week we're on Zoom for an hour and a half talking. Then I'm in this men's program with a coach. So I've gone out and built tribe. I, I was just, I, I talk about it in No More Mr. Nice Guy of how we men need to connect with men. I, and since that time, being single for 15 years, remarrying again, living in Mexico, wife, raising a couple stepkids. Um, you know, I, I, I can speak okay Spanish, but I'm not fluent. Making male friendships here is a challenge. So I went and I found a tribe. I found a coach. I found a men's program. We do retreats together three times every year. We're online with each other twice a week. We have accountability partners. So I'm optimistic about that. I'm optimistic that as men go seeking tribe, um, there's more and more good information. Yeah, some of these men seeking tribe going to white supremacy and neo-Nazi and, you know, some hate groups, you know, that does happen. Um, but all in all, I see when men get with men, it brings out the best in us, not the worst in us. Absolutely. You know, I remember when I was in uh, graduate school, this is maybe six or seven years ago, and I joined my first men's group. And I mentioned that to some of my uh, colleagues. And I remember getting a couple of snickers or a couple of people who were almost suspicious just of the idea of men getting together. It's like, well, what yeah. are you doing? You know, like what's going on there? What are you talking about? And I feel like even in my uh, life, which, you know, I'm younger than you, but I feel like even in my lifetime, I think it is starting to change. You know, I feel like men's groups and men's work and all this stuff, I think it's starting to become more accepted. Uh, and certainly the internet has been an absolute game changer in that regard. So yeah, to a large extent, I, I, I share your optimism. There's so much I want to, to cover with you. And as, as usual, I have far too many questions. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, your accountability groups and connecting with other men and stuff. As I was preparing for this interview, I was wondering about you and, and your habits or, or the things that, that you find help you stay successful, you know, in your personal life, in your professional life. Do you have any kind of rituals or daily habits or, you know, things you do to stay successful? Uh, yeah, just keep teeing it up for me, man. I like it. Um, <laughs> as I sit here talking, I'm sitting at my desk in my office and right over here is a whiteboard. And up at the top of the whiteboard says 10 books in 10 years with the date 2028. I, I set that as, as an impossible goal uh, after in two consecutive weekends attending a Mankind Project, New Warrior Adventure, and the first retreat of my men's program that I joined a year and a half ago. And in both of them, basically, they said, what's your mission? Why are you here? What's your purpose? And about two months prior to that, I'd, I'd had a near-death experience. I, I'd, I'd been sick for about three months, and nobody could figure out why. I saw doctors here in Mexico, back in the States. 
uh, severe stomach cramps. I lost over 30 pounds. I couldn't eat. I couldn't shit. Um, and I was misdiagnosed, undiagnosed. Finally, a doctor here in Mexico ran the right test, ran a CAT scan, and, and bottom line, I had a tumor blocking my small intestine. Um, after I went in and he did surgery and took the tumor out, um, he told my wife he didn't know how I was eating or shitting. I wasn't. Um, I was a mess. And I was mostly sleeping. I'd, I'd surrendered into maybe I was dying. Maybe nobody would find the problem. It would have killed me if it had gone on much longer. So this, these two events, these two workshops were like two months after that. I was back. I was energized. Uh, I recovered quickly. Um, you know, packed the weight back on. You know, I'm healthy. And, but I realized, you know, when I went into surgery with a Mexican doctor in a Mexican hospital going, all right, I'm, I'm prepared for this to be it. I may not wake up. I, I was really surrendered into that. I was okay with it. And um, I thought, I wished I'd written more books. I'd only got the one out there. And uh, when I woke up, I remember looking at the ceiling in the recovery room thinking, I'm alive, I'm back. And uh, I spent that night in the hospital, looking at the ceiling, reorganizing my website, repurposing a lot of my classes and what I've written, and thinking, how am I going to get this out there into books? And since I made this commitment a little over a year, not a year, not quite a year and a half ago, I've completed two, I'm partway through a third book. Um, so, and I've got a list of those books and projects. On the other side of the whiteboard, uh, there's P1, P2, P3, P4. That's four practices a day. Um, of at least 10 minutes that I try to do. And they can vary all the way from uh, sitting meditation to yoga to Qigong to reading uh, good books to just meticulously doing nothing, just being still out in nature in my backyard. And I have Monday through uh, Sunday on the, on the left side. I put a check mark when I've done each of those practices. And I have people I check in with on that as well. And I, I'm not perfect at it. In fact, I'm far from perfect, but I, I still have the reminders on the whiteboard and I got my accountability groups. I've got another line that says for writing. My intention is to write at least 90 minutes, but a preference two to three hours every morning. So I check when I've written. Uh, exercise, my intention is to exercise at least five times a week, at least 30 minutes each time. Check that off. My guitar. I, I brought my guitar down here a few months ago, got an online class, got busy with the launch of Dating Essentials for Men. And the other day, my, 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 one of my employees said, have you, have you gotten back to playing your guitar yet? Because I kind of let it slide. But it's still on the list. The guitar is on a stand right here. I look at it every time I come in. And I know I'll, I'll pick it up and, and start practicing again. Um, it's just life. You know, I, I, we the moral of the story is that the moral of the story is I should get a whiteboard. Get a <laughs> There's whiteboard. a lot going on in that whiteboard. Get a whiteboard and get accountability partners. Like I said, with my mm. exercise buddies, uh, there's two other guys who are on WhatsApp. They, one's in England, one's in Arizona, and I'm in Mexico. We check in every day. And, and especially check in when we don't keep our commitments. Um, and and um, got that. Like I said, I've, I've, got, I've just created these little groups. Wherever I struggle to be consistent, that's where I need accountability partners. That's where I need practices. Mm. So to answer your question, yes, I, I, and even being in this men's program, I, I was trying to go it alone and, you know, my marriage wasn't working so great. I love this woman, but we were struggling just a year into our marriage. And I thought, I, I can't do this alone. I mean, I talk about that in No More Mr. Nice Guy. Don't try to do it alone. Uh, we need men. And uh, so I opened myself up to it. A guy who took one of my workshops said, oh, I'm in this program with this guy who studied with uh, David Data. I said, perfect. Give me his information. And now I've been working it's John with John Wineland, right? Yes, yeah, John Wineland. So I've been working with John. I started coaching with him for six months. That's when I was sick. Then I, I, I'm the second year into one of his men's programs. Um, so it's made a big difference in my life. So I, I can't preach it enough. That's why I said keep teeing these questions up. Yes, have daily practices have systems, have accountability. And, and I, in fact, I wrote a chapter on this just a couple months ago for the book I'm working on of how just doing that, of, that helps you be more masterful in the world by, by having a purpose and a plan, by having um, your, your systems, by having your practices, by having your accountabilities. That makes you attractive to both women and world. 
So, you know, these guys that are sitting around saying, well, you know, women just don't talk to me. I'm just, well, I go, okay, if you're at home surfing the internet and smoking dope and watching TV, no. But if you're living a masterful life, you're going to penetrate the world and women are going to see this guy and they're going to go, I wonder if he'll penetrate me in the same way. It, 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 it makes you authentically attracted by living masterfully. Now, that doesn't mean living perfectly. We guys get hung up on that. Well, I got to do it perfect. You know, but nah, that perfectionism just kills everything and usually makes us do nothing. No, we, and, it, and it's what we'll practice till the day we die. That's why we need our tribe. It's why we need our initiation. It's why we need our men. Absolutely. That's well put. And can I just say, you know, I'm sure this is not news to you, but when I found out that you were working with a coach, I think you told me about actually in our, our first call, like kudos. I think that's really cool because, you know, a lot of people would look at you and, you know, you're in your sixties now and you wrote this very successful book and you're, you have a PhD in, in, you know, family counseling and all this stuff. And people would say, well, why the hell would that guy need a coach? But the fact that you're doing that, I mean, I think that's, that's really admirable and, and inspiring for, for guys like me. So just kudos. And when I found out you're working with John, that's, I'm really, I really admire his work a lot and I'm, I'm hoping to talk to him on the podcast sometime soon. Yeah, oh, definitely. Anyway, that's, that's fantastic. Well, and, and, you, and the thing is, yeah, we're human. We, we need this. We, we never, the, you know, David Data says it's the masculine heir to think it someday I'll arrive and I'll be done. I'll have, you know, yeah. I'll have it figured out, you know, life will be working perfect. My woman will be happy. My boss. Will blah, blah, I think blah. that's the first, the first chapter in the way the superior man it is. is. Stop it's hoping for a completion chapter. of anything, anything. in life. Yeah, yeah. It, it isn't. And I know when I contacted John Wineland, you know, two years ago, going on two years ago now. And I said, Hey, I was referred to you. Here's my situation. And, and the first thing he said to me is Robert, you know, I, he said, I know who you are. I've read your book. It's on my reading list that I give to everybody I coach with and everybody in my men's program. What do you want from me? And I said, John, you've got stuff I don't. I'm still working on me. I still need help. And, and you know, I remember when we started coaching together, he'd, he'd frequently, like in our first session or so, he said, well, you go, well, you probably already know this. But I, after he did that, like for about the third time, I said, John, stop. Stop saying, <laughs> you probably already know this. Assume I don't know anything. And he goes, oh, like a beginner's mind. And I said, exactly. Just take me where I'm at. Give me your best stuff and it'll be perfect. It's what I need. And, um, and I still do. I mean, he, he knows me well enough now. He can call me on my shit. He can just get down to, to, to just very quickly to what I most need to hear. And as men, we never get over needing that. We, we, we yeah. need our teachers, our coaches, our, our mentors, our, our, our accountability partners. We never get done with that. Absolutely. You mentioned guitar earlier. Uh, I'm a musician as well. And I can't remember who, but it was this, I was reading about this very famous guitarist who uh, later in his career was taking classes. Like he hired this guy to teach him a few things. Yeah. And this guy was like, he was like on like Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan level. It was one of those guys. Yeah. And you read, you hear these stories. It's, it, I find that so admirable right at the top of their game. And they're still looking for that edge, looking for that outside perspective. I think that's fantastic. I want to be conscious of your time here. So I'm, I'm you know, choosing my questions with great care. Three times marriage, because uh, you know, you're, you have some unique perspectives, some unique experiences. I would imagine very diverse experiences, getting married at different points in your life all this work that you've done working with God knows how many men and how many couples in that. Uh, what have you learned about marriage through, through three of them? <laughs> and I, I, that's not facetious in case you oh, can't, you no, can't no, you no, know, no, believe me, not I, at all. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I genuinely, I like being asked the question, believe me. Um, um, I, I, when I was single and dating and, and teaching men to date, I, I would jokingly and seriously say I'm, I'm a marriage therapist who's been divorced twice and a dating guru who doesn't have a girlfriend and people still pay me money. You know, they still pay me money for my advice. Um, so my takeaway of marriage is, uh, it's not natural and it doesn't work. Um, now I don't say that. Good night, everyone. Yeah. No, I don't say that in a negative pessimistic way. No. It's, it's not in our human DNA. As, as I've already mentioned, we did not start pair bonding 
uh, less than 10,000 years ago in human existence. And even then it wasn't around romance, it was around economics, it was around ownership. You know, the, 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 you know, the part about the patriarchy is right. What's wrong is that it was meant to provide and protect for women. It wasn't meant to abuse and, and demean women. Uh, it, is, it tends to be more abusive to men in general. Um, but it was ownership. And where the people that had the most stuff could own the most wives or own the best wives or how, however you want to look at it. Um, but it's all around economics and ownership. It, it wasn't around, you know, do we love each other? That wasn't even part of it. Romantic love has only existed maybe 200 years in human existence. Um, I can't remember if I read this in one of Mark Manson's books, but I, th I think that's where I read it, that, that he said it's been asserted that Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet to show the absurdity of romantic love. And if you think about it, Romeo and Juliet is the absurdity of romantic love on steroids. You know, oh, let's kill ourselves because we love each other so much. It's stupid. The idea of romantic love is, is, is a creation of songs and, and, you know, and now television and movies and romance books. Um, it's a shitty foundation to build any kind of long-term effective relationship. Oh, this woman's hot. I love her breasts. She would probably make a great companion. Huh? How does that fit? Or, you know, and then the way women do it, just as dumb as we do, they just don't do it so much around body parts that they get, oh, he gives me butterflies. You know, I wonder what it'd be like if he held me and I could spend my life in his arms. Huh? That shit doesn't work out. You know, it doesn't even work out in the songs and the movies, um, but we think it should. Right. And then and then, you know, religion came along um, less than six thousand years ago to kind of replace the order that the tribe used to create. And so they started creating this order. And some religions came up with this idea is that, you know, what will we'll, we'll enforce is sexual exclusivity. And, you know, women have to be virgins when they get married. And, you know, people got to stay together for life and we stone them if they cheat and this and that. Well, you know, if if fidelity, lifelong fidelity was natural, why would religion have to regulate it? Why would we stone people for it? Why would we shame them for it? And even me being me saying I've been married three times still carries a stigma of shame. You know, oh, I failed. I failed in my marriages. Well, yeah, I, I could have done better. I, I Probably where I should have done better was being a better picker you know, and probably not staying so long, probably not marrying the women would have been a better idea than, than, oh, I should have done something different. So we humans are not cut out for long-term monogamy. We, we, we can, we can, you know, put our heads down and just kind of hunker our way through it. Now, I'm not advocating for divorce. I'm not advocating for polyamory. I'm not ad advocating for anything. I'm just saying it doesn't come natural. But because it doesn't come natural, if we approach relationship, now, now see, here's the deal nowadays when it comes to relationship, as I've, I've kind of been harping, the tribe used to meet all of our needs for, for connection, for sex. Now, the best evidence is that sex was communal during tribal days. Mother nature likes that. Mother nature likes lots of men putting their penises in lots of vaginas. Then, you know, the whole tribe takes care of the kids. Everybody's taken care of. The population grows. So Mother Nature likes that model. Mother Nature does not like the exclusivity model. It's shitty for genes. It's really bad genetically. Um, so well, what we used to do, it worked. But now we don't have tribes, so we don't get our need for connection. We don't get fed. We don't get protected. We don't get sex. We don't get companionship. We don't get that from tribe. So what we tend to try to do is try to go get it from one member of the opposite sex. Now, if that isn't already sounding crazy, you know, you're not listening every need we had that was met by a group of people, we now try, and, and mostly by a group of people of the same sex, right? Mostly. Uh, and now we try to get all of those same needs met by one person of the opposite sex because we like her breasts. You know, wait a minute. <laughs> why, why, why isn't marriage working out? So with that said, it's not in our DNA. And I think that, Committed long-term relationships are probably one of the most powerful personal growth machines for us humans imaginable. And that's the way I approach it. Not like, oh, you know, well, why didn't that marriage work? Well, it, it, it didn't last for a number of reasons um, that were a combination of issues of two people trying to do something that doesn't come natural with no real skill set to try to overcome 
that, that issue. So in my mind, I just keep trying to use relationship to help me improve my skill set, to help me to become more conscious, um, to be more aware, to be a better listener, um, to be more differentiated, to be more boundaried. And um, one of the things I wrote, I wrote an article about this about a year ago, when, I, when we had an assignment in our men's program to do something called a feminine reconciliation, where we actually go back and we basically, we have to do a kind of a hard, cold look at, you know, where we failed to lead in relationships, where we, you know, basically what about our failed relationships is on us, not on the woman, but on us. And in every one of my relationships is because I failed to lead and I failed to set boundaries early on when bad behaviors, you know, began to show. I'd st instead, I would try to fix them and talk the woman through and make it better because I didn't want to lose the woman because I wasn't very good at getting them. And so that was on me. And one of the, I wrote an article that one thing I found out about every long-term relationship I've been in, uh, now my third marriage and, and two or three other long-term relationships, is that in every relationship, I found, I, I discovered something new that I didn't know I didn't want in relationship. I've dis I discovered something new. I just bumped into something new that I didn't know I didn't want. So like with one woman, you know, I found out, oh, I don't like it when the woman won't tell me what's on her mind and just clams up and doesn't talk. Or I don't like it when, you know, once a month when her period comes around, she breaks up with me. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> Or I didn't know that I didn't like that, you know, when a woman imagined something in her head, she believed it to be true and then blamed me for something I didn't do. I didn't know I didn't like that. Or yeah, you, you find, and that's what you find out in a relationship. You find out what you Have you ever been know. blamed like, for your behavior in a dream before? That's my favorite. Uh -huh, or she uh -huh. has a dream about you. <laughs> yeah. My second wife, especially my second wife, who, who wasn't really good at separating reality from, from her dream states. They, they blended uh, a lot. I, I, I got blamed for a lot of things. Um, she would have a, a dream that I was cheating on her. She'd wake up in the morning. So I had this dream that you were cheating on me. And even though she knew it was a dream, she would still treat me for at least a couple of weeks as if that dream was true. Yeah. I've, I've had that been there. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't been with like, there's a few things I haven't been with yet. Um, but I've been with that one. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you this then, because I feel like I ask most of my guests this question and it's largely motivated by uh, just totally selfish reasons because I'm, I'm I'll be 32 this year and all my friends are getting married. I'm just fascinated by marriage and, and more specifically how people make that decision to get married because I see right. it as probably the most consequential decision you can ever make in, in a lot of ways. Um, well, so you may make it a few times. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Well, on that, on that note, you know, your current marriage, when you made that decision, how was that decision, that decision-making process, whatever, how was that different from the times before in your life when you made that decision? How, how, how was it different? Good question. Um, and it was different. In fact, I wrote a blog article about this about three weeks ago. Um, and it's on my Dating Essentials for Men website on, on the blog. Um, put that right. little plug in. So with my first wife, um, we got married for... Well, most people get married for wrong reasons. We got married because um, we never fought. We never had a real reason to break up. And when we finally did break up, I realized, oh, not only am I an avoider, she's, she's even bigger avoider. Um, if she didn't want to talk about something, it just never got talked about. And, um, and so, you know, when we're dating, we just never had a good reason to break up. And we um, were going to a Christian college that put a heavy emphasis on getting married. Um, so we did get married two days after we graduated and um, we, we started being sexual with each other. And, and for each of us, we were each other's first sexual partner. And I'd kind of grew up in this religious, you know, organizational fundamental religion and kind of thought, Oh, I've had sex with her. You know, she's the person I need to marry. Not a real good reason to get married just because you had sex with them. Um, but it was part of my thinking and, and just, we never had a good reason to break up. So kind of just things pushed towards getting married. Um, she's a good person, but we didn't match up very well in a lot of ways. Um, she was pretty, pretty reclusive and passive and introverted. And I kind of like to do stuff. She didn't. Um, and, and so again, not a bad person. Um, mother of my child, my son's 30, older than you, 34, you know, she's a good mother. Uh, second woman, um, she seduced me. 
Uh, I found out later, we were both married. I found out later that she'd had a, she was only 26 at the time. She'd had a dozen affairs um, before she ever met me. Um, but she was hot. She was sexy. Um, she was interested in me. And um, it's kind of like, you know, so I left everything. I left my wife, my kid, you know, being a preacher to be with that woman. Again, not good reasons to get married. But, you know, I, I was in that, like, I can't believe this amazingly hot woman um, wants to be with me. And then um, on her honeymoon, uh, we were camping. And she said, I remember saying, aren't you glad that now that we're married, we don't have to pretend to like sex anymore? But wait a minute. I wasn't pretending. Oh, God, no. <laughs> you know, wait, wait a minute. I wasn't, but I, I was um, a nice guy. I was a true blue nice guy. As long, mm. you know, I started working on these issues after I married her, which was, I'm grateful for. So again, wrong reasons to get married. So then after being divorced, getting out and being single, learning to really like living alone, having a good life, being happy, uh, meeting lots of great women and having some longer to shorter term relationships. Um, I, I and, and the reason why people sometimes ask me the question you asked is, I, you know, I'd said before, you know, publicly, I've said everything in podcasts and books. I don't hold anything back. I said, I'll never... Um, get married again, never live with a woman again, and never raise another man's kids. Uh, okay, I'm married again, I'm living with a woman, and I'm raising two kids that aren't my <laughs> own. Right. What changed? Um, so really what I came down to is that as, as Lupita, my wife, and I, we, we, as we got to know each other over time, and we actually just started out just as a sexual relationship. We just started hooking up and enjoyed the sex and realized over time we liked it. We enjoyed spending time with each other. And the better I got to know her, the more I realized what a quality person she is and how much I just liked being with her. It was always just easy to be with her. And this is considering we didn't speak the same language. She doesn't speak English. I had okay restaurant Spanish, but all of our conversations would have our phones out. We'd be on our translation apps, just trying to talk to each other. Um, and so with that, even, I just really enjoyed being with her. So as we kept kind of would gather more and more and more and spending more time and having more adventures and, and kind of the, the catalyst that made me forced me to make some decisions is that I found a house. I just fell in love with the house down here in Bayard. I thought I, I, I got to buy this house and uh, I'm sitting in it right now. And um, it looks nice. Oh, this is my office. Yeah. Uh, it is <laughs> nice. It's a beautiful, beautiful older Mexican home. And I thought, I got to buy this house. And um, so as it looked, you know, as it worked out that it, I, that I could buy it and it was going to work out. And, um, you know, here was my wife and her two, or my that time girlfriend and two kids living in kind of a, you know, a little two bedroom place in a very bad neighborhood. Um, and I was going to have this big house with three plus bedrooms, five bathrooms, a room I've turned into an office, a room I turned into a gymnasium, a swimming pool. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go live in this place alone. And my girlfriend and her two kids, I thought, that doesn't make sense. So, you know, and it wasn't really even a big deal to think, well, of course, I'll move her. I'll move her and the kids in with me. But I had to confront this thing around marriage. And I, 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 I just, I sat with it for a while. And I asked myself a couple of questions. Um, first question was, if I was not projecting my past bad experiences with women in general, and especially in marriage, if I was not projecting my history onto this person, would I have a barrier to marrying her? I thought, no, she's different than them. She probably, you know, I even told her, I said, I've got a lot of fears from my past. You know, the, every woman I've been with changed in some fundamental way after we got married and it's kind of like they just dug their heels in and said, nope, I, I ain't working on me. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, evolve. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to quit doing this thing that seems so important to me that actually makes it really difficult to live with me. You know, they just kind of like, no, I'm not going to quit. Live with it. Uh, kind of like I would for a long time and then go, no, I can't. So I had this fear that she would also do like the other women I've been with, that she would change. And, and I'm a marriage therapist. It does happen. People change after they get married. People do start mailing it in. People do, do start running the defense mechanisms they learned as children to protect themselves from their fears of intimacy. We all do it. Okay. But I thought, you know, but this woman, we communicate well, even though we don't speak the same language. We work through problems. 
I like her honesty. I like her integrity. Uh, I love her intelligence and sense of humor. I love how affectionate she is. I love how she treats me. And I thought, even though she did not seem like the most rational, like wife choice for me, you know, different culture, you know, not the same language. She's 22 years younger than me, two young kids. I had a PhD at 29. She dropped out of high school at 15 to work and take care of her mother. She's eight of 10 kids, grew up in poverty. I grew up in kind of a white burb suburb of Seattle, white bread suburb of Seattle. Just nothing like you'd think, but you know, we're go we'll be married three years this November. And I'm still grateful she's in my life. She's, she's an amazing woman and we're growing together and she keeps growing with me. So I thought, okay, well, I wasn't projecting my past stuff on her. Would I be open to marrying her or living with her at very minimum? I thought, yeah, if I wasn't projecting that, she's not them. It's not fair to project them onto her. So that was one question. Second question is, is what's the most loving thing to do for her, for me, for, for everybody involved in this picture? Is it to just me, you know, keep living my life on my terms in my house. She lives her. We get together, fuck every now and then take a few trips, whatever. And I thought, and the, and the other part, really the deeper part was she'd never been married. She'd always said, I only want to be married once in my lifetime. Um, the father of her children was abusive and a loser. Um, that didn't work. She tried, but you know, he was an addict and he was just not a good situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eight to 10 kids, she's been, every person she's ever been close to is, lied to her, cheated on her, abandoned her, abused her, family members. Every man she's ever known has been a serial philanderer. Every man is part of the culture here. And she has never known a man who didn't cheat. Um, and so she's, she has, like most women, abandonment issues. She's got them in spades. She's got abuse issues. She's got, and, and in spite of all that, she's still this most open-hearted, like generous, loving, affectionate woman I know. Um, and I thought, what would be the most loving thing for her if I really, truly loved her? And, and that question never get asked, gets asked in the manosphere, by the way. What is the most loving thing to do? Um, yeah, and I said, sure. the most loving thing to do would be to marry this woman, bring my open heart, bring my life. You know, just let's just let's just take this, you know, remove every barrier, take this as far as it can go. And let's just see what what it's capable of. And, and so far, um, that's been a good decision. We've had her struggles. She's got her, her past wounds that she'll project onto me, triggers my past wounds, and I react in not good ways. But I went to work on them. She goes to therapy. We work on them together. And um, it just keeps getting better. And so the decision to marry her wasn't like this real logical. It is a little more emotionally based. Is what's the most loving thing to do? And it was move her in, marry her, raise her kids. Let's, let's give it a good go. And I'm perfectly happy with that decision over three years into it. Her kids are great. They love me. I love them. Um, they're, they're funny. They're amazing. Uh, she's amazing. You know, uh, three years into the marriage, she, uh, she still wants sex two or three times a day. So, you know, not a lot of complaint about that. So I'm glad to hear. Yeah. I don't think that's going to change. She, she started before we go, are you afraid I'm going to quit wanting sex? And I go, well, I don't see that one coming. Um, the other things may pop up. You were scarred like, from your second honeymoon. Yeah, exactly. Saying, can we stop there, pretending? Good there Lord. Might be, there might be other things that I, that I didn't see coming. The one thing I did not see coming when I moved in with her, I did not know she was an amazing cook. We move in together. Mm. She says, you want me to make this tonight? And I go, I don't know what that is, but sure. Make it. It was good. The next night, you want me to make this tonight? I, go, I don't know what that is either, but make it. I found most people, you know, move in with somebody and find out horror stories. I moved in and found out she's a fucking amazing cook and loves to cook. But wow, didn't see that one coming at all, but I'm happy. So very good. You know, again, I, I can't tell. I, I don't know. If, I don't know. I can't tell anybody you should or shouldn't get married. Um, but just just realize David Snarch. This, this was so liberating to me. The book Passionate Marriage. I highly recommend it. Um, he says in there, in every relationship, somebody's going to get left. In every relationship, somebody's going to get left. It doesn't matter if this is your, you know, the car you love, your dog, your best friend, your woman. 
somebody's going to get left. It's the impermanence that Buddhism teaches. Nothing is permanent. But we live in this culture where we try to create these permanent standards. Like once you love somebody, you should always love them. Once you marry somebody, you should always be married to them and should always want to be married to them. We don't live in a, in a permanent world. It, impermanence is, is the, the core of, of all existence. It's change. And um, I think if we can get past this, well, you know, if you get married, you got to stay married for life. And if, you're, if, if you don't stay married to life to one person, you, she, it failed. No, it didn't fail. We just bumbled our way through it and hopefully did our best. So I tell people, I, I, I bumbled my way through every relationship, even with a PhD. Getting a PhD in marriage and family therapy did not teach me how, how to do marriage. Um, I've learned that by just bumbling my way through it. And okay, that's how we learn. And um, be willing to learn. But be willing to, to make mistakes. And um, as David Data would say, uh, learn how to fail and stay open. Don't close. Yeah. Don't close when you fail. Stay open. And, you know, that's, that's the best we can do. Yeah. Have you read his book, Blue Truth? Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. The, he says the word open about 800,000 times. I was going to say about every, other word, about every other word is open. <laughs> I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. If you want yeah. to kind of just condense blue truth down and be stay open. <laughs> stay open. Yeah. But it's a, it's a, it's a very good reminder, as you know. Um, well, I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, I really appreciate your candor and just how open you are during these discussions. Another big reason I wanted to, uh, to talk to you again. Uh, congratulations on the new book. It's tremendous. I highly recommend it to any man looking to, uh, to improve his dating life. And I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much, Dr. Glover. Zachary, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I, I, I enjoyed chatting with you and uh, look forward to doing it again. hope you enjoyed today's episode of Humans in Love. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, my work, or you'd like to listen to back episodes of the podcast, please visit humansinlove.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love using your podcast app of choice. If you're a fan of Humans in Love and you'd like to help keep the show going and help me spread the word, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, remember that life is short, so let's make it count. And thank you, as always, for your listenership and support. I'll talk to you again very soon.